The biggest battle we will ever have to face is the battle between you and you. It's the battle of taking your mind to that limit and then breaking through. On the Mindful Experiment podcast, we will share concepts, universal laws, and interviewing individuals who have done just that, who have gone through the dark times and through those moments, allowed their light to shine bright. I'm your host, Dr. Vic Manzo, and I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and taking this journey with me as we discover different avenues to break through those limits, expand your reality, and evolve into the person you desire to be. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Dr. Vic, and excited to share with you this amazing interview I had with Ariel Garten. Uh, I was excited to have her on. I'm a big fan of her product that she uses. Uh, she's the co-founder of Muse. It's the brain sensing headband. You can use this with meditation and it kind of just helps you train you to how to meditate and also tell you how well you're doing by reading your brain as you do it. There'll be a link in the show notes that you can click to to get more information and so forth. But Ariel is probably one of the most interesting people that you'll meet. She's a psychotherapist, a neuroscientist, a mom, a former fashion designer, and the female founder and visionary of an amazing and highly successful tech startup called Muse. Um, so basically, as I said, it, it really tracks you and helps you get into that zone um, and help you with, you know, in that process of solving the problem most of us have when it comes to meditation practice. It lets you know when you're doing it right. And I've literally been using this product for over four years and a uh, very big fan of it. And it has helped me um, in many different ways. And I've used it in a variety of different ways to help to see how I can get into that zone, how I can get to that deep state of calm and so much more. When Ariel is not reading brains, like literally, <laughs> or investing and inspiring and advising other startups and women in biz, um, you can find her on stages across the world from TEDx to MIT to Southwest Southwest. Uh, she is, inspires people to understand that they can accomplish anything they want by learning what goes on in their mind. And she's also the co-host of Untangled Podcast. So this was a great interview. I don't want to take any more thunder away from her. So let's go ahead and let me introduce to you Ariel Garten. Ariel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am delighted to be here. I'm excited to have you. Big fan of your, the product. Big when I when I saw you coming across, I was like, "Yes, this is awesome." I've been using it for over four years. Uh, I love what it has helped me, and I also share with others uh, the product massively. So, just so excited to have you on. Oh, that's amazing. Always exciting to meet a muser also. <laughs> awesome. So first question I wanted to start at, to ask you is like, how did you, you know, get into meditation? What was, what, how, what, what brought you to meditation in the first place? Sure. So I did not begin as a meditator. I started out as a psychotherapist who would be using meditation with my patients. I was a neuroscientist who understood the benefits of meditation on the brain. I was an entrepreneur, a person who wanted to do everything at once, and I had a brain that bounced all over the place. So whenever I would sit down to meditate, it would be like, um, there's something else I should be doing now because I want to be doing everything at once. Uh, and my brain was never quiet. 
And so although I'd be encouraging my patients to meditate and I'd be telling them how to do it, I'd be teaching them, I sucked at meditation. And so along this path of psychotherapy and entrepreneurship, I started working with this early brain computer interface system um, where you could put a single electrode on the back of your head and shift your brain state, focus or relax. And as you shifted your brain state, we could allow it to shift the sounds in the room or turn on lighting or interact with elements around you. So I had this exposure to this incredible early technology and I stood back and said like, whoa, this is going to be meaningful for the world. So I got together with my co-founders, Chris and Trevor, Chris Amini and Trevor Coleman, and we started to explore what this could become and ultimately made the recognition that the best use of this technology was not controlling the world outside of us. It was letting us understand what was going on in our own minds. And so that was the birth of Muse, the idea that we could have this cool technology that could actually track your brain and let you know what was going on, turn your brain activity into sound, and we could use it to actually teach this incredibly important skill, meditation, which I frankly sucked at and was dying to learn. And so the beginning of my meditation, true meditation practice started with the beginning of creating Muse. I love it. What made you choose the name Muse? Was there, is there a story behind that or it just came all about? Uh, so my mom's an artist. Um, and so the idea of Muse as an inspiration, the three muses, the nine muses, was very meaningful to me. And musing is the process of thinking. You know, I'm musing on something. I'm cogitating. Um, so it was this n- sort of mix between inspiration, um, you know, the sort of aspiration of what you want to become and the play on thinking in the mind. I love that. That's so awesome. And what is meditation to you? So you asked a scientist, (laughs) what is meditation? I will tell you. Um, So the uh, form of meditation that I'm most versed in is focused attention meditation. So I'll talk primarily about that. Jumping back a second, the working definition of meditation is a practice or a training that leads to healthy and positive mind states. So most people think it's this weird woo-woo thing or just letting your mind go blank. It's not. It is a practical practice or training that leads to healthy and positive mind states. Um, In a focused attention training, which is the methodology that I'm most trained in and that Muse helps you do and that we study, the focused attention meditation, what you're doing is you're focusing your attention on your breath, your mind wanders, you notice that it wanders, and you return. And it's this very simple practice that then leads to a host of incredible psychological and emotional and interpersonal benefits. So meditation is simply a practice or a training which trains the mind and as an extension the body and our relationship to the world to be healthier and better for us. I love that. Can meditation be a form that someone can use to help them become free in a sense? In a way to, um, well, we'll just leave it at that for now. Absolutely. We are all boxed in by so many false beliefs. We are boxed in by the things that we tell ourselves that just are not true. We are boxed in by our amygdalas, the fight or flight response of your brain, freaking out at things that are really benign, like a stain on our pants or feeling that, you know, this meeting didn't go the well the way it was supposed to. And so we're constantly hyper-reacting with fear in places where we don't need any. 
We're constantly generating stories that hold us back. Like I'm not good enough. Uh Oh, what do they think of me? Oh no. Things that make us ultimately feel small, feel insecure, feel unfree when these stories really are not true. So to me, meditation is a path to freedom. You know, when you look at it from a Buddhist perspective, the description is that is a path to reduce suffering. As we crave, as we want, as we desire, this is causing suffering. And when you extinguish those sufferings, you will at the other side have freedom. I look at it more from the lens of my own kind of human thoughts and feelings and the way that these fears and these thoughts constrain us and they shouldn't. You're like, you walk into a room where there's a party and how do we typically feel? Like a little bit shy and a little bit like maybe we don't know if we belong and a little bit like maybe we shouldn't talk to these people. But if you didn't have any of those thoughts, you would just literally be free. You would walk into the room, you'd talk to whoever you wanted, you'd build relationships and have good conversations and you'd feel great and want to come back again. So, you know, that recognition that the thoughts in our head that limit us are not true and that we do not need them. That's one of my main drivers for teaching and spreading the power of meditation to learn that you can disengage from those thoughts. You can change the relationship in your own mind. I love that. Really change that relationship and, and be free. No, I, I love what you're saying there because it's the things I kind of share is how meditation does create like a relationship with self. And the more you can take control, understanding that thoughts will always be there, but you can shift the gears to not be so aroused or stimulated by whatever, you know, your pressing thoughts are, you can shift that into a different direction. Like you're kind of saying, you go in, there's one situation, but you can, if you're meditating, you'll even focus on it. You just get, you're focusing more on what matters to you most. Totally. 100%. So most of us just kind of go through life with our thoughts happening in our brain and assuming that that's the way it is. Um, you don't have any control over what goes on in your head. It just kind of is happening. And that's cool. That's the dialogue. Uh, as soon as you begin a meditation practice, you focus your attention on your breath, your mind wanders, you notice it. You then take your mind off your wandering thought and put it back on the thing that you choose to attend to, like your breath. You have all of a sudden shifted that relationship. And it is massive. Your mind is no longer thinking you. You are now having control over where you choose to put your mind and your attention and the thoughts that you choose to entertain or let go. It's a game changer. I love it. And sometimes there's people who will think, they think about meditation and they think of a, they see a Buddhist monk or a monk in general, and they think they have to meditate for hours and hours at a time. Is that to be true? Or is it something that you don't have to practice all the time? Like not in the long term, like length of time. Yeah. So it depends who you ask. You know, some people say the juicy stuff happens at minute 42. And if you push past, (laughs) then it's, you know, (laughs) but the reality of it is most of us are incredibly busy and establishing a regular but short meditation practice can be incredibly helpful. So, you know, with Muse, it's something that we hear really often like, oh, I can't sit there for five or seven or 12 or 20 minutes. We tell people to just start at three minutes. If you get in a three-minute meditation every day for five days, you have just rocked. And then once that becomes comfortable, make it a little bit longer and a little bit longer. We have uh, quite a number of studies done with Muse, and one of them from Baycrest Hospital looked at average individuals using Muse for 10 minutes a day for six weeks. And after that time, they saw a change in their relationship to their body, so less somatic symptoms. They saw an increase in calm. And they also saw an improvement in cognitive function as demonstrated by the Stroop task. So, you know, just 10 minutes a day consistently for six weeks can make tremendous change. 
Love that. Love that study too. You know, some people will think, you know, meditation sometimes may be um, little, what, what's the science, the neuroscience behind meditation? Because sometimes people think, ah, it's a little out there, or maybe it doesn't work. And I know being a chiropractor, mindfulness and all that is what I preach uh, to my patients. That is something I try to get them to do. But it's, um, what is some of the neuroscience behind meditation and the benefits? So it turns out that the neuroscience behind meditation has been pretty significantly studied at this point. There's over a thousand published studies just talking about the scientific implications of meditation in your life and your mind and your body. When we look very specifically at the brain, we see some tremendous changes that can take place. So um, in a series of studies by Dr. Sarah Lazar, she looked at the prefrontal cortex of meditators. So your prefrontal cortex is the part at the front of your head. It is your attentional control center. It's also your higher order processing. It's the thing that makes humans humans. It allows us to create meaning, plan, organize, have metacognition, see what's going on in the world around us and in our own mind. So the prefrontal cortex is where it's at. It's an incredibly important part of your brain. And unfortunately, as you age, your prefrontal cortex begins to thin. It's just the natural process of aging. Sarah Lazar was able to show that in long-term meditators, they could maintain the thickness of their prefrontal cortex even as they aged. So there was one 50-year-old long-term meditator who had the prefrontal cortex thickness of a 23-year-old. Whoa. Tell me about it. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So you have a th- it's incredible. So you have the ability to maintain your prefrontal cortex or strengthen it. Um, at the same time, in long-term meditators, what we see is a decrease in the activation of the amygdala. So as I mentioned, the amygdala is the fight or flight response. It's the thing that's always scanning for danger and looking for things that might harm us, which was super awesome in the days when there was you know, wild bushfires. Well, unfortunately for some people there are now, but it was you know, back in the day when we didn't have the same sort of security and we were living in, in without the kinds of resources that we currently have. And you could have, your amygdala was constantly scanning for danger and that was really helpful then. These days we actually live incredibly relatively secure lives. Um, and our amygdalas have instead started to fear coffee stains on our pants and oh no, did I say the wrong thing? Um, in a long-term meditator, what you see is a downgrade of the amygdala. So a reduction of that fight or flight center. Um, in a short-term meditator, um, you can see a reduction in activity. In a long-term meditator, you can actually even see a decrease in the size of that organ. So that fight or flight response, it's constantly like giving you false information about the world and telling you to freak out when you don't need to, starts to downregulate. So that is just from that alone, from the, the, the wiring between the, the amygdala or the temporal lobe versus the frontal lobe, you, you have this uh, back and forth. But if you can strengthen and thicken the frontal lobe even more uh, through meditation, just from that alone, because I, I know that study very well, um, it can allow you to um, not be held in fear so much, not let the, you know, the lion's not in front of us anymore. And now it's in our heads. We can minimize that lion. Absolutely. And you referenced the play between the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe, between the amygdala and prefrontal cortex. And that's a really important element of meditation. So as you meditate, what you're doing is you're observing what's going on. You're getting your metacognition, you're rising above. So you might feel that your body's freaking out, but you learn the ability to rise above, to see that actually everything is okay and to calm yourself so that you don't need to react. And from a neurological perspective, part of what's happening is your prefrontal cortex is taking control of the situation. It's communicating to your amygdala and telling it to downregulate. 
So your prefrontal cortex is in a sense acting as the parent. If any of you have had or had small children, um, you know that they can freak out and have a temper tantrum when actually everything's fine. And it's your job as a parent to say, actually, everything is okay and to soothe and to calm them. And it's very much the same relationship between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala in the sense where the prefrontal cortex is able to see that everything is okay and uh, actually train the amygdala to downregulate. So let's look at this then as we're getting to the neuroscience with meditation and being able to, with, with the prefrontal cortex, you know, you can see, project things forward and see how things will play out in a sense. How does that play, how does meditation or mindset and the role play a huge role for the entrepreneur? How does it, how is it a game changer for them to have, I don't want to say a competitive edge, but more, I like to say a creative edge, uh, more of that. So as an entrepreneur, um, <laughs> a journey which I have lived totally and fully, I you know, raised millions of dollars for my startup. We have a product and market. I have a team of 65 people, uh, all of that with zero business background, like many entrepreneurs. You just, you have a vision and you execute. Yes. And one of the key things for me was never letting the inner talk get in the way. Because it's so easy at any point in that journey to say, oh, you know, I'm not going to be good enough. This is not going to be good enough. The risk is too great. This is too scary. Nope, let's come back to the safe place. Um, or no, I don't feel confident enough that I can execute. And really the only thing between you and execution is your belief in it. Like people can accomplish extraordinary things when you don't let your negative self-talk get in the way. When you're not afraid to call the top person in your field and say, hey, I have an idea. I would like to talk to you. And often in entrepreneurship, there's a lot of rejection. And how you deal with that rejection also predicts your success in your business. So if, you, if, the, if the rejection causes you to fall back, think you're not good enough, pull back, you call that top person, they don't respond, you then feel just terrible about yourself and so you don't pursue it again. And that's not going to make for a successful entrepreneur. So this ability to cultivate resilience and be able to have an emotional resilience as well as a mental and intellectual resilience is key. And so meditation can teach you to both train your mind and it teaches you to effectively exist in relationship to your emotions so that you can feel them. You can be like, whoa, I just felt that call. That didn't feel good. But you don't spiral out a story around it. You don't, don't then go like, oh my God, this is awful. You then feel more emotion. You have more negative thoughts, feel more emotion, and you end up in the toilet. So meditation teaches you to experience your emotion as sensation, experience it fully, not spiral it into thinking, which then allows you to recover far more successfully. I love that. And you can, re and you can see things in a grander picture and you can continue to move forward instead of letting it defeat you. You got it. I love it. Um, how can then, you know, because fears as an entrepreneur, it's, you know, you, there's, there's, I would say entrepreneurs are uh, an amazing uh, individuals because we, you know, for the most part, you, know, you have to get on, be comfortable with being uncomfortable and you have to face a lot of fears. How are things that you can do to like uh, overcome those barriers or break through as, as a psychotherapist, the terror barrier, right? That's the psychological barrier that we have in our minds. How are we able to break through that? Oh man, I could talk about this for so long. <laughs> so, However long you want to go. <laughs> as, as you just said, uh, it's those barriers that hold us back and they're emotional and psychological. And as I always say, your ability to sit with discomfort probably predicts your success in life. Because nice. we, as humans, approach something that feels uncomfortable and how you deal with it determines your success. 
So it's like, I want to make that call to this top person, but you know what? I'm scared. I don't like the feeling of being scared. So I'm just going to back off. I'm going to get off the gas. I don't feel scared again. Great. I'm not going to approach. I'm not going to do it. Somebody who succeeds will be like, I'm going to do that. I feel scared. It's okay. It's, it's a feeling. I'm having a feeling. I'm going to do it anyways. You break through, you make the call. You succeed or you don't. doesn't matter. Eventually, you make enough calls, you do succeed. Your ability to both sit with that discomfort to get yourself to the other side of it totally predicts your success. And so the first important thing to know in order to break through that fear is to know that it's just fear. It is just a sensation. So as humans, we are wired to believe that when our amygdala fires, it means there is danger. It means there's something wrong in the world, but it actually doesn't. It just means your amygdala is firing. You know, this morning, my little kid walked into his bedroom and it was dark and he got afraid and he came running out and said, mommy, I'm scared. And we went in and we opened the blinds and we turned on the lights and he says, oh, I see there's nothing to be afraid of. Just because your amygdala is firing doesn't mean there's actually something scary there. Once you make that real mental realization, you can have a bunch of sensation going on in your body and experience it and feel it and know that it's okay. You can still step through it to get to the other side because there's not actually something scary there. I love that. And the more that you you kind of break through that, the more you get comfortable with it. From a neuroscience standpoint, you're starting to create new connections and able to be like, okay, I've, I did this once. All right, fine. I do it again. All of a sudden, there's new wires and pathways starting to eventually create from that, which from a neural standpoint, it's going to start to build a new pattern that gives you, I don't want to say more confidence, but allow you to make it easier to make that transition. Yeah. And I would say more confidence is accurate because every time you break through a fear and realize that it's okay on the other side, what you're literally doing is gaining confidence. That's true. It's, it's quite amazing. I love it. So, so what, okay, go story, if yeah, I go ahead. yeah, of course. Um, I had a concussion a few years ago and after that became incredibly terrified of anything touching my head. Mm. And it is unlike me to be afraid of things. And I just recognized that I had more and more fear building up around this. And uh, literally just before this podcast, I was intentionally lying on the floor, rolling my head around, standing on my head, manipulating the floor around my head in ways that I logically knew would be safe, but my body was freaking out telling me, don't do it. It's going to give you a concussion. Mm. And I can tell you there's such a psychological disconnect while it's happening because my body's filling with the sensation of fear. But I know that that fear isn't actually related to reality, that in reality, it is totally okay to just roll my head around the floor in a gentle way. And as soon as I did that, the world of freedom opened up to me because it's like, oh, right, right. There's literally nothing to be afraid of here. And so mine was, you know, a funny particular example, but it's one that people can, you can try this in your life in any way. You know, the easiest one is just a cold shower. Cold showers seem incredibly scary. You know, you're about to turn on the air, water. You've got like all this anticipation anxiety. The cold hits your arms. You're like, ah, oh no. And then like a minute or two in, you can't really feel the cold anymore. Like, you know, swimming in the lake in May. I'm in Canada, so it means something to us. Like, you could go swimming in the lake in May. It's really cold. And when you get in, it feels amazing. All of these things that we are actually safe, we just build a bunch of fear over. And if you actually start a practice of when you feel that fear 
doing it anyways, facing the fear and moving through it, you will be amazed at all of the other possibilities that opens up in your life, all of the other places where you did not realize fear was holding you back. I love that. And would you agree too then, like when you face your fears, that's where you can truly experience freedom? 100%. On the other side of fear is always freedom. Love that. And I think that's why, I've, in my my own personal opinion and my own experiences and everything I've done with meditation, I think that's where you know, meditation just, it's a game changer. It really allows you to take on things that you used to be once afraid of. Yes. And, and stay, I always say like, it's the calm in the storm. <laughs> you know? That's awesome. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn, one of the fathers of the mindfulness movement. Um, he has a book called Full Catastrophe Living. Um, so yeah, so we have this notion of meditation as something that's like so quiet and so peaceful and calm. And it truly is that calm, but it also gives you the ability to stand in the storm and have that be okay too. Yeah, I love that. So one of the things I did want to ask too is like, you know, for example, like I think it's, I think it was the Dalai Lama that said this and I may be wrong, but he's stating that if we taught one generation, our generation now to how, learn how to meditate, we can end in violence in one full generation. And, you know, what are ways that, you know, we can help kiddos and or encourage moms to um, help kiddos how to learn how to meditate and how to incorporate that in their life? Um, so my kid is three. So this is something I've gotten the ability to, to be practicing. Um, and by the way, I completely agree with the Dalai Lama. Not that I would ever disagree with anything he said, I guess. But that really <laughs> resonates because I truly believe that if everybody meditated, we would have something close to world peace. Um, if you just learn to turn off the part of you that causes the scarcity thinking, that causes the fear that drives us to be unpleasant to one another, to need to create boundaries, to protect ourselves, um, and in doing so hurt other people. If everyone just actually truly meditated and understood the principles of it and lived through that, we would have world peace. Yeah, I- um, and clearly starting with kids is really key. There's an amazing study. Um, so Mind Up is a wonderful organization started by Goldie Hawn. They teach mindfulness in schools. And uh, they did a study demonstrating that kids who meditate in their co- the Mind Up cohort had a 15% increase in their math scores. Awesome, right? Yeah, that's massive. Yeah. They also had a far more exciting 25% increase in their pro-social behavior and about a 25% decrease in their aggression. Love that. Yeah. Yep. So there's some, there's some stats, science for the Dalai Lama. (laughs) Well, even just, even just from a neuroscience standpoint, right? If you're out of, if you're out of temporal lobe, megula and all that stuff, and you get into that frontal lobe, it's a game changer. You're going to see things of like, if I do this act, then I know that these are the consequences that come with that. And do I really want to have those consequences and how's that going to impact my life? And then the other people around me, you become more, awareness aware to your decisions and choices that you make where more of a temporal dominant lobe or in that area you're just like i don't care i'm doing it because i want to do it yeah you can become a rational human being <laughs> and is that not the point of raising children you can say that again <laughs> yeah be both highly creative and also to train their rationality to be able to make good choices about themselves so in terms of teaching kids to meditate um one of, I've been meditating with my kids since he was tiny. And when he was an infant, I would actually focus my meditation practice on his breath rather than my breath. 
outcome. So it actually focused on him while he, while I meditated, focus on his breath, breathing in and out. And that was the object for my attention. Um, as he grows up, we've been doing simple counting and that he's really good with whenever he would want something badly. Um, you know, like the tablet, it's like, okay, well, let's do three deep breaths or now that he's older, 10 deep breaths. And so that's become just a habit for us that he, he understands he counts and he breathes deeply as he counts and he can feel the shift and the change that's happened. Um, if you're looking for more support for meditation practice with kids, we have an app called Meditation Studio, and in it are both tons of meditations for moms in various forms, as well as a set of meditations for kids, um, including sleep meditations called Goodnight Kiddo. I love it. That's awesome. Yeah, because I think this is, it's a huge thing that, uh, again, like the Dalai Lama said, if we can just get people to kiddos to start learning this technique. I wish I had it at an early age in my life, I think it would have definitely taken me off on a different course, but I mean, everything's uh, perfect timing and all that, but it's one of those things where uh, I, it would have helped me through so many things as a child that I look at now where I'm like, now things don't get to me. And I'm like, it's meditate. I'll meditate on something if I'm really upset about something. And then I see the bigger picture. Yeah. I love that. How can then, um, you know, how can you be empowered in your own mind? How can uh, what are strategies that you, you recommend or utilize to empower your mind to in, in the best of its ability? So empowerment is an interesting word. You know, empowerment suggests that we already have a power within us that we are calling up or tapping into. It's not like stealing power. It's not taking it from other. It's like empower. There's a power in me. How can I allow it to rise? How can I recognize that it exists? How can I feel it moving through me? And then how can I use it to act in the world in the best, most appropriate, highest way? And so one of the things that I love to do to empower myself is to empower other people. And so so often we think about empowerment as like, oh, I am in a deficit, therefore I need to increase my power. No, empowerment is the ability to grant power to others. Empowerment is the ability to support others, to love others deeply, to see the potential in somebody else that they may not even see in themselves yet, and to be able to nurture that and grow that. That is incredibly empowering when you can do that for somebody else. In terms of ways to personally tap into empowerment, um, uh, as cheesy it can sometimes sound, but positive self-talk is really important for me. Um, I, if I find myself that I'm not in a good state, I will sit down and just give myself a mantra filled with love. I will feel the sensations of love move and course through my body. I believe that most people in the world feel some amount of unsafe, unloved, and unworthy at kind of every moment in time. Um, and if we could only all know that we were safe, we were loved, and we were worthy, then we would all be full, compute, complete human beings. And again, that you know, world peace thing would kick in. <laughs> so I will often do a practice if I'm feeling low or insecure, like unsettled, um, where I first feel the sense of worthiness of myself. And most people, so I would do this as a psychotherapist, and people are like, I'm not worthy. And I'd be like, okay, is a baby worthy? I'd be like, yes. Were you worthy as a baby? Mm, maybe. I don't know. Are you worthy as an adult? Oh, absolutely not. Let me tell you that is bullshit. We are all worthy by definition. We are humans. And probably if you're listening to this, you're probably also a really good human. 
And so allow yourself to know that, to feel that you're not going to get too high on your own boat. You're not you're like, God's not going to strike you down because you're not being like, you know, um, obsequious enough or, in, you know, if you're being impious because you actually feel good about yourself, you are allowed to feel good about yourself. You are allowed to just feel and know that you as a human, whoever you are, you are worthy by the nature of your existence. And if you're listening to this and you're kind of shirking back and you're like, I don't know, I don't think so. No, no, not me. Let me just tell you all of that is just your inner critic talking. That is just all a bunch of story built up in your head where somehow you're not supposed to feel good about yourself. You can just put it aside because the truth of the matter is you are awesome. So when I'm feeling low and I want to feel empowered, I allow myself to feel my worth. I profuse myself with safety and I recognize the love that I have in my life. And I allow myself to just deeply feel that. And the act of doing so is so healing. I can, I can tell even from the tone of your voice as you continue to explain how it changes. So it's, uh, it's a great anchor to have. It'll keep you centered as, as much as possible, even through the discord of life that can happen. Um, I love that. Do you have a specific meditation practice that you do on a daily basis uh, or type of practice? I know you mentioned focused attention. Um, is there a type of meditation that you utilize every day? Yeah. So I muse every day. Like musing awesome. was the thing that got me into meditating and helped me really feel what it was and know the state I was supposed to be in. Um, and that's you know, been a practice that's been consistent for the last four years. And it really drops me right into the zone. I am focused. I'm attending on my breath. I know when my mind has wandered, I bring it back. And it's like, it's a key anchor for me. And then from there, you know, I can go on and do additional practices after that. I can go and try new techniques that I'm learning, but that's always my anchor. I love that. Do you do any like biohacking with the muse, like seeing with different, like maybe meditations or different stuff to see how you can get into the calm more or like keep you, keep you in the calm area? Cause I mean, we can discuss about what calm is because I know some of the listeners may not know what muse is um, and, and be able to uh, play around with it in that way too at all. Should we? Should we actually just start with the description of what Muse is for everybody? Let's, let's do that. About? I think that'd be a lot simpler. Let's go that route first. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so Muse is a brain sensing headband that helps you meditate. It's an EEG, an electrocephalograph, so it tracks your brainwave activity um, and it translates your brain activity into sound. So it's actually this like slim little wearable. It's, you know, like a Apple Watch. It's just a little wearable device that you slip on your head like a pair of glasses and it tracks your brain during meditation. And it gives you real-time feedback to know when you're focused, when you're in the zone, and when your mind is wandering. And the metaphor we use is your mind is like the weather. So when you're thinking, when your brain's bouncing all over the place, you actually hear it as stormy. And as you bring yourself to quiet, focused attention, it quiets the storm. So it literally teaches you to meditate. It solves that problem of what's going on in my brain? Am I doing it right? What am I supposed to be doing? It actually guides you. You can hear what's going on so you know when you're focused and when your mind is wandering. Then after the fact, you actually get to see data. You can see graphs that show you where your brain was at when your mind was wandering. It helps you reflect. It helps you understand your practice. And there's a kind of motivational architecture that keeps you meditating. So you can see your progress session after session. You can set reminders. There's guidance for times when you don't have your muse. Um, so it's really this total mind-body meditation experience. I love it. And you guys have like, so in that with the muse process, you know, can you can I explain like how when you're in that zone, like, cause I think there's three phases, right? There's the calm, there's the, um, 
Neutral and active. Yep. Neutral and active. Yes. Um, can you explain what that kind of is just in general? You kind of said the storm and stuff like that. Yep. So during your meditation, you're getting real-time feedback on your brain. So you're actually hearing when your mind is wandering. It's your cue to notice that you're wandering. And then when you come back to the breath, it quiets the storm. And so that's your cue that you're there. And when you're super focused, you hear birds, little birds that tweet. And that lets you know that you're in the zone. You're laughing. Everybody loves the birds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm hearing the tweets in my head as you're saying it. So <laughs> Totally. Um, and so then after the fact, you can see your graph that shows you when your mind was active and when it was calm. And so active is when you're distracted. That's the state that you want to be noticing when your mind has begun to wander. And then when you bring yourself back, you're bringing yourself back into calm. So you're focusing your attention on your breath. Um, so you're in a very focused state, which is also actually a very calm state. So the graph is showing you when your mind is wandering versus when you're in that pure focused calm in the state of focused attention meditation that you're aiming for. I love that. And you guys came out with a new one that has also HRV and other things involved too. Yeah, totally. So that's Muse 2. What I've been describing is the original Muse. Um, Muse 2 gives you, has an additional sensor that tracks your heart rate. And so it gives you real-time feedback on your breath, your body, and your movement, your breath, your heart, and movement in addition to your mind. So the heart rate sensor actually tracks the beating of your heart and it translates it into the beating of a drum. So you're actually like literally hearing each of your heartbeats like the beating of a drum and it trains a process called interoception, which is your ability to really understand what's going on inside your body. We give you guided breathing exercises so that you know how to slow down your heart rate, how to calm your body. Um, and then there's a movement sensor because for a lot of people, especially younger ones, starting with the mind is difficult in meditation. Simply starting with the body is where it's at. For some people, it's just finding stillness in your body, which can then let you find stillness in your mind. Couldn't agree with you more. And uh, I'm a big, I love HR heart rate variability and all the technology that it does. As a chiropractor, we use it ourselves and it's amazing uh, what we can, what it gives us for that information. Um, so I'm, I love how you guys added that in. I, when I saw that, I was like, yes, okay, cool. This is interesting. I like this. <laughs> Uh, and for the listeners, I am, I do use Amuse. I've been using it for over four years and I love it. Highly recommend it. Um, really one thing that I, I commend that you guys have done is just how it can help train people because it can help people learn how to get into the calm and know how to stay there, especially with the chirping of the birds and, and all that other stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. And so as a therapist, like I wish I had that tool then because I'd be teaching people to meditate and it's like now I can just hand them a muse. And so we have lots of chiropractors, other practitioners who use muse with their patients, who you know send muses home with their patients because it's the easiest way to just be like, here, this will teach you to meditate. So it's great for people starting their meditation practice. It's also great for people who have an existing practice or a deep practice and want a new way to reflect on and actually see what goes on in your mind. I love it. Yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a game changer. And it does, I think, build confidence over time for those who have tried meditation before. And they're like, uh, yeah, all I hear is noise in my head. I can't sit calm. I'm, all, I'm a nervous wreck. Uh, and now you have a, something that you can actually look at. And I love how it appeases the left brain because we live in a very information-based society where you have something that is appeasing the left brain while you're doing something that feeds the right brain, which I just love. That's why I love the union of it all. Thank you. So no, my pleasure. Have you guys done, so when it comes to like the research with Muse and stuff, have you guys, um, any studies you guys have been doing to like how, um, oh, I had the thought in my head, it's going away. Um, it's okay. 
let me see here. Kind of like another one. <laughs> and I know. <laughs> it's the thing about thoughts, they just I, keep on coming. I was also about to ask you how many, th- you know, that's one thing that people sometimes will say. There's always thoughts that constantly keep coming. And um, do thoughts ever stop? Because I hear people who have been told by someone, oh, if you meditate, you can stop your thoughts and you'll have no thoughts. I have my own research I've yeah. done, but I'm you're, you're the guest here. What would you say to that? Okay, so thoughts will never actually stop coming. Um, we are thinking beatings. Our brain is always generating stuff. The question is, at what rate, at what velocity, and of what meaning? So when you meditate, one of the things that you do appreciably notice is the sensation of a decrease in the constant chatter in your head. And that's actually tracked to a real neurological change that can happen in meditation. So if you look at the work of Dr. Judson Brewer, he took um, long-term meditators and put them in an MRI machine. And what you notice is a decrease in something called the default mode network. So the default mode network is the relationship between your posterior cingulate cortex, kind of it's above your ear, and your prefrontal cortex, which we've talked about a lot. And if you ask somebody to sit in an MRI machine and do absolutely nothing, just just be, you will typically see activation in that network. It is the default mode. And experientially, what you experience when that default mode network is firing is an inner dialogue, inner talk, um, inner conversation. And so when you have somebody go through a meditation practice and then do it at, at length, what you can see is a deactivation in that default mode network. So the thing that meditators talk about, you know, the quieting of the monkey mind really has this neural correlate to it. Do we end up with no thoughts? Likely not. It also depends how you define a thought. Um, There are many different ways to look at the way that information comes together in the brain and is presented to the brain and the body. Um, So there's lots of ways to define what a thought is um, and all of thinking, you know, doesn't generally cease. However, the quality of your thoughts can change dramatically. So you see a decrease in the kind of meaningless chatter that we seem to have in our minds at all moments that don't particularly seem to serve us. I love that. And I know also too, it's just meditation with like functional MRI studies and stuff like that, how individuals who uh, meditate have less activity firing like crazy. And I think that's, the, is that the part of the default that you're talking about? Yep. Default. That's what I thought. Yeah. Yep. And so it's one of those things where, and just for the listeners, if you can quiet your mind, then you can hear this other voice that's with inside you or this other thing. Some say intuition, some say guidance, whatever, but it's something that helps you get more in tune with self and allow it to guide you in more different ways. Would you kind of agree to that too, that when you quiet the noise in the mind, it helps you uh, be more centered and be able to connect and make, well, we already, we already discussed the better choices and stuff in life, but being able just to be have guidance in some way in life to allow you to um, see things in a grander scheme of things. Yeah. There is a new wisdom that emerges. I mean, we call these wisdom practices for a reason. I love that. Yeah. So a couple things here, we're getting close to the end here and um, um, where can someone, because we're talking about the muse here, where can someone get a hold to learn more about it and all the science behind it and all the fun stuff that the muse offers? Awesome. So we have a website, choosemuse.com. Muse is M-U-S-E. And there you can learn more about how it works and uh, some of the research behind it. There have been, I think, about 175 studies published with Muse. We've got a few of them up on the website. 
Love it. Guys, Jeff, definitely check it out. It's fun. I've had a lot of fun with it. I've I practiced for me personally, I've done it with, um, I've used different breath works with it just to see what helps me get better in a calm state with be, be def, different methods of like a Wim Hof versus square breathing versus conscious breath, just to see what helped me stay more focused. I know you guys use it for more meditation. I was just like, all right, let's see what can get me in calm and let's see what I can do that and helps me more. So um, I found a lot of value just in that alone. That's awesome. Um, and so, Eric, how can people get a hold of you, get connected with you, find out what you're up to and all the fun stuff that you're doing? Awesome. You can always follow me or message me on Instagram. I'm Ariel's Musings, A-R-I-E-L-S-M-U-S-I-N-G-S. Um, Twitter, Ariel.Garten. And I have a podcast all about the brain called Untangle. Awesome. I love it. Um, definitely check out the choosemuse.com guys. Um, Ariel, this was awesome to have you on. I love how we were able to, uh, in my world, geek out a little bit on the neuroscience and just hear someone else chat a lot about it. Uh, it was fun to have, and it was a pleasure to have you on. Super awesome and fun to see your knowledge of neuroscience too. Great. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, I try to keep up with it as much as I can. <laughs> so thanks for being on and always a pleasure. My pleasure. And everybody, have an amazing, amazing day. Thank you for listening to the podcast. For past shows, please visit www.empoweryourreality.com. I hope this show inspired you and added to your life to help you on the journey to rediscover who you really are. To connect with us on Facebook, please visit www.facebook.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. Check us out on Twitter. The handle is Dr. Vic 21. Follow us on Instagram, www.instagram.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. If you were inspired by the podcast, pay it forward by sharing it with someone who you know can benefit from it. Thank you again for listening to the Mindful Experiment podcast, sharing paths to help you rediscover your infinite potential. Mm-hmm.